sustainable journalism and preserving the fourth estate. It's a special edition of the Perception Podcast, this time featuring Russell Contreras with the Associated Press. This is Tom Garrity and the Perception Podcast. These episodes are focusing on the New Mexico First Forum, Sustainable Journalism, Preserving the Fourth Estate. It's all in advance of the June 6th, 5.30 p.m. event at the University of New Mexico. Tickets, by the way, can be purchased through nmfirst.com. I'm speaking with each of the different panelists to get their insights on the topic today. I have the chance to speak with Russell Contreras of the Associated Press and Good afternoon, Russell. As we're talking out here on the uh, terrace of the or the veranda of the Garrity Group, uh, so we might have some construction noises behind us. But welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Now, while you and I have known each other for at least a decade, um, they don't have the uh, my necessarily perspective. So, if you could just provide a little bit of background about how it is that you got to uh, your position at the Associated Press. Well, I started off um, as a studying education and in college. Um, I was studying history and English, uh, wanting to to pursue a career in bilingual education, but I was told early on that I needed to know Spanish. So that kind of threw a, a wrench in that dream. Um, but I was studying Spanish and studying um, education and history, and, and I started writing for my school newspaper with the University of Houston, the, the Daily Cougar, and I got hooked. Uh, and that developed over time. Um, after I graduated, I was working as a writing teacher, but I ended up um, freelancing for the Houston Press, which was then our uh, alternative news weekly in Houston, and then later landing a job at a daily newspaper north of Houston. Um, over time, I just kept writing, honing my craft, eventually um, moving to New York and going to grad school at Columbia, uh, where I received an uh, MFA in creative writing, and then um, decided to apply for the AP internship, which was then in the, in the late 90s, the premier internship. They throw you in to the fire right away. You write stories. You learn to do interviews. You, you go from one minute covering a fire to the next minute interviewing the governor. In this case, I was in New Jersey. So it, it, that internship, and we'll talk about this later, why those are so important and are not hard to come by because of what, the way the industry is structured, set me up. And I eventually came, worked in the Associated Press New York, decided to take a pay cut to come to Albuquerque to work for the Albuquerque Journal covering Albuquerque Public Schools, which was another throw in the fire, learn as you will at you know, real time what journalism is. But that set me up. The stories that we wrote, that I wrote there and were edited, uh, helped me land at the Boston Globe, uh, where I, um, I came when Marty Barron, the legendary editor, was um, leading the, the newspaper right after the series on the police uh, uh, priest abuse cases they did that came out in the movie Spotlight. Um, and then I went back to the AP, and now I'm uh, here in Albuquerque. Wow, what a fantastic background. Of course, uh, during your time covering the Albuquerque Public Schools, that's where you and I actually got a chance to get to know each other. Oh, yes, yeah. I believe you were a superintendent at one point and became chief of staff, so then we we just, we talked there, and I, you were always honest with me, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, I always appreciated the coverage, so thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so... When we look at your passion for journalism, and I didn't realize until our conversation just now that uh, about you know your whole time in Boston, but why is it that you're passionate about journalism? Well, journalism is a chance for you or for anybody to practice what we call the, the blueprint of history, the first draft. You're writing things as they happen 
whether it's it's something basic as as a as just tragedy or, or uh, a meeting here, and you're putting it in context for readers, and and it could be in text form, but it could also be in image form, and now it be in video form and audio form. But you're you're letting your viewers and the consumers know of news what is going on in your community, and it's not so much of what's going on in Washington or what's going on in New York, but it's what's going on in and across the United States. And places that people call flyover states. They, I mean, this is where this is where real people live. They have real lives, and they're, they're basically the drivers of the economies. Um, so, anytime I can get out, and I love being out here in New Mexico, and I love to being out in Texas, and I love being out in Massachusetts. You were covering various communities um, that uh, can get overlooked. Um, that most folks, when they're consuming national news, may not take in consideration what's going on, say, Framingham, Massachusetts, um, and maybe overlooking things that were his, to have historical connections. Massachusetts, for example, where, one of the things I covered there was the anniversary of the Civil War was coming, and there were a lot of celebrations in the American South, but there were nothing in the American North who happened to win this, who happened to have won the Civil War. So in writing, you're covering meetings and all that, it would take a look and walk outside and say, what is this statue doing here? What does it represent? It's, it's to the Union soldiers. Why is it in, in such a dilapidated state? You start asking those questions and you start looking at stories. And I think those are the, the pieces that people appreciate because it, it tells not only about our past, but it also says something about our present. The topic for the New Mexico First Forum is a conversation about the uh, a free press. Um, how and or why is that a relevant topic today? It is. It's probably... Very, it's highlighted as one of the most important topics that we have in the country going on today because of our polarization of politics, um, but also because the way the news media has contracted. We're seeing layoffs across the country at uh, news organizations, mainly newspapers, especially local and regional newspapers. They've uh, laid off staff, not just reporters, but copy editors and editors and photographers and people who lay out newspapers. Um, but radio stations too as well, um, and, and television stations. They've cut back, uh, not just on staff, but on salaries. So when one wants to find out to make uh, educated and intelligent decisions on what to support, on who to support, when you don't have this information, you're walking into a voting booth, you're walking into uh, making decisions about your whether to purchase a home, you're walking into situations where to move uh, and where to put your kids' school, with, with blinders on. You, 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 have, you do not have all the information before you to make these type of decisions. So I always relate to, we've all gone in the voter booth, and you, you go to the, the lower um, elected official races, or the races, and you you, you got to vote on a judge, and you have no idea. Think of that, you know, as you're making that decision, you have no idea who the Congress people are and the city councilors are, because we don't have the tools anymore to educate you as news consumers, as citizens. So it is vastly important, especially now that a free press is, is thriving, that it's healthy, and that it uh, continues to sustain us as it has since the American Revolution. I mean, the, the, the press was essential in, in getting information out for the colonists, how the colonists responded to the British. It was essential in getting abolitionists and other folks, moderates, to respond to things that are going on in the Civil War. And it was essential to understand why we we're entering World War II and the horrors of the Holocaust. Without the free press, you don't have an educated populace. 
And when one attacks, whether it's an elected official or a celebrity, attacks the free press, calling it fake news or something that um, you can do without, I think that's a dangerous precedence for us because democracy functions by information. You have to have information to make educated decisions. And if you don't have information, then one cannot, cannot, democracy cannot sustain itself. Good stuff. I, I mean, I can tell that, uh, you know, one of the things that the listeners don't have the opportunity to see is just your passion uh, behind this and how much of a very important topic that it is to you. And I imagine that uh, your colleagues also uh, feel the same way or they wouldn't be in the particular industry. Yeah, we don't get into this industry to make uh, uh, millions of dollars and become rich. This is something that we do because a passion, just like a teacher jumps in for and to become an educator or an officer goes into law enforcement. This is something that's dear to our heart. And for journalism, it is, it's a privilege for us to be in there, to write stories and to ask questions and to gain the trust of the public. When I ask someone to talk, talk to me and I, and I ask their name and give me their story, it doesn't matter if it's, it's about an accident that happened or an issue of the day. They're trusting me that I'm going to be accurate, that I'm going to spell their name correctly, that I'm going to quote them accurately, and that I'm going to put things in, in context that is, is fair and accurate. Um, and so there's a level of trust that I carry and all of us carry when we walk into those situations, when that erodes and there's no trust and I approach someone and no one wants to talk to you because they don't believe you or they, they, you don't have the credibility, then, then of course, then, you know, our job has, is, has really faltered. Um, I'm then no longer able to do my job, but also um, news consumers and audiences aren't able to get information. And then that's where we have the problem. And I think um, it's an honor to be in this field, and, and for many of us that, that do practice this, we realize that and we, we hold it sacred. You know, Bloomberg uh, has an article, and we're going to include the article in the show notes, a link to it, uh, just talking about the, the future of the news industry, specific uh, to the article. They're talking about the nonprofit newsroom. Uh, just in generalization, um, do you see, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts when you hear about a nonprofit newsroom? Well, to be fair, I mean, the Associated Press is probably the world's largest nonprofit news organization. So we've been that way since um, the Mexican War. The U.S.-Mexican War. So, of course, I work for one, but I do see, um, and we were a news cooperative um, for many years, working with um, newspapers and, and our and our broadcast members. But I do see it has been in the last ten years the the growth of nonprofit news, and I think it feels a niche, and it, and it it actually is a response to the economy and how news organizations are are having to navigate this changing field because of the internet and because of layoffs. So when you think, I think of nonprofit news, I think of Texas Tribune, which does um, a tremendous job. I think of ProPublica. They do a lot of investigative work. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, even our NPR stations, our, our public radio stations. They're nonprofit, and they, they function on listeners like you. So it's not a new thing, but I, I think um, because there are so many news holes, there are many um, entrepreneurs and there are many advocates saying, well, let's take a look at this model. Uh, for many for many years, there was a newspaper out in Florida that did this, and I think it's a it's a good response, um, but it's a challenging response because we we don't know fully how long this could sustain. You've got to constantly be fundraising, you have to get subscribers or partners. It depends on on how one crafts it, and you have to uh, rely on found, um, foundation money to keep this going. Um, it hasn't reached been able to reach the same levels. As we were in the 90s, we're matching the number of journalists that are out there at various news or, or associations and outlets. But it's, 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 it feels this, and, I, and I, I see some of the strongest journalism coming out of these. 
Guard, the Guardian is another example um, that asked people to take part in this, to be a partner on this. So I, I think it's, it's something that I, I'm excited to see in the next, where this is going in the next five years. Let's talk about uh, briefly about misperceptions of the media. Um, I'm, you know, you had touched a little bit uh, a, a couple of questions ago about the topic of fake news, but what would be some misperceptions that you'd want to be able to address right now? Well, I would say when when I hear criticisms about the media or the news media, what people are usually are trying to articulate is they're upset at cable news. They're upset as the opinion news channels that I call them, because these stations make these these outlets may give you a, a set of news, but then they turn around for a show and have a panel where these folks on across the political spectrums debate the news and go back and forth, uh, and so that's a form of entertainment and it's cheaper because when I was in college, uh, these news. Um, organizations on cable used to have dispatch after dispatch after dispatch of stories, and that's very expensive. And this requires a lot of journalism, requires a lot of time. Now the model is you may give one or two of those stories, you get a quick interview with a senator, and then you go to a panel, and you basically have people yell at each other. And where you stand on the political spectrum, you'll respond accordingly. And so therefore, when someone gets mad at one outlet, uh, whether it's a liberal one or a conservative one, I walk into... uh, a Trump rally, and someone will assume that that is part of my model. I'm not. I'm there as a reporter, gathering both sides, telling you what happened, trying my best to be do it accurately, uh, with with no agenda other than the truth. And so I think because there are so many diverse media outlets with different goals and different uh, business models, um, everybody everybody assumes that we have this. We're all, we're on this, the same platform. We're going the same way, and that's not necessarily true. So when I've been to political rallies and someone's been upset about something they, 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 we wrote about their candidate, or, or not just we, but the media, um, we all get lumped in. Um, and I think that's a mis- misconception, especially because, like, say, like the Associated Press, we have a long history of, of being unbiased, of, of being, trying to be as accurate as we can. And if we do make mistakes, we have very strict rules on our accuracy. If I misspell... Tom Garrity, for example, with one R. Um, and you say, you misspelled my name. Don't worry about it, No big deal. No, it is a big deal. I have to issue a correction if it's the day after and saying, in this news story we reported, Tom Garrity saying he loved the hot weather. We misspelled Garrity. Even though that may seem insignificant, we have to correct it because I may pick that name up later in the archives and misspell it again. So that, those are the standards that I have to live by. Uh, and uh, many outlets do as well. A lot of newspapers, a lot of television stations live by that outlet. So if we are, we do report something false, we are accountable to ourselves and accountable to our readers and our viewers because we live on trust. So right now, what I see are politicians when they get upset and they're trying to dra- to push a certain agenda or if they're getting heat for anything, a particular issue, and there's no way out, it's easy to attack the media so that you can attack the messenger and then try to change the narrative. This, I mean, this is not a new concept. Uh, Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew did that when they were in office. Um, they tried to, Nixon especially, tried to change this, the topic from Watergate. Spiro Agnew tried to change the, the topic when he was facing indictment. So this is not a new concept. What, what I think is new is that because of social media, pushing the narrative that the media is a collective out with a particular agenda is, uh, is, is really dangerous because 
it, it attacks the the fourth estate and in a structure that is allowed to give democracy information. Earlier in our conversation, you were talking about internships and that internships are evaporating. Um, what you know to the future of journalism and the future of providing opportunities? Um, what is there a way to? change that as far as providing more internship opportunities? I, I do think so. Um, what is happening because of, especially newspapers, they've faced staff cuts and cuts in, you know, they're seeing revenue fall. They've cut their program. They, they've looking across the bars, where can we cut? And one of the easiest areas was the internship program. Or they have internships and they say, well, we can't pay. Well, when you do that, what that does, invite only um, more privileged or wealthy students who can afford to to uh, take some time off to develop some skills, to get the clips and get the um, the uh, repetitions and the photographs so they can show for the next job. So it, it's 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 fundamentally flawed. But I do think uh, many organizations are re- reconstituting their internship, looking for diversity, looking for um, diverse skill sets. So one not just has to be someone who can write a story, but can also take video and edit video and, and uh, take photos. In addition to that, but I also think that in the case of New Mexico, um, there hasn't been as much of a push to get folks to apply to internships as there were um, when I was in college. For example, the AP internship, as I mentioned, is one of the most competitive one. is now a global internship. If you apply, you can get assigned to Sao Paulo, Brazil, or, or go to Washington uh, rather than going to Bureau. When I went, I went to Trenton, New Jersey. Those were my options, and it was a big class. The class is smaller, but the opportunities are greater. You can go to Mexico City. You can go to London. You can go to Paris. Unfortunately, um, the last AP intern from New Mexico or from the University of Mexico was Susan Montoya Bryant, my colleague now, and she did it in the late 90s. So since then, she and I were going through the list. There has not been a University of New Mexico internship that we know of. Now, there may have been one or two. But we don't know. So in the, the span of, of more than 20 years, around 20 years, there's only been one. Now, we've had a number of New Mexico State University interns who have um, been part of AP's internship. And this is just one example. But not much, many. What that does is it, create, it, it closes doors for potential New Mexico students to get into the most competitive, the most coveted spots for training. Uh, and it prevents us from these journalism opportunities, and I, I think there are many reasons for that. Finally, the New Mexico First Forum is scheduled to occur on June 6th, 5.30 p.m. in Albuquerque at the University of New Mexico. Tickets can be purchased through nmfirst.com. Uh, Russell, uh, why should people consider attending? I think we're going to have a roundtable discussion about um, people in media that's going to be honest, that's it's going to be frank, but it's also going to be illuminating. When you get folks to talk about media like this in uh, in around New Mexico, uh, it's a rare opportunity. It's a rare chance because we don't normally do this. Usually we're all, all of us reporters or journalists in our own little uh, media outlets, our own world. We're trying to get the news out because we're, we have declining staff and we're trying to be as, as um, professional as can. So we never had the chance to come together and share ideas. And so what, from what I say may be different than, say, what my colleague Gene Grant says at, at New Mexico PBS. But I think when we share it, we actually will, we, we can come and actually hear concerns of the audience and concerns of, of regular citizens. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that um, 
my pages are smaller or, or the short the stories are shorter and we can tell them well there's a reason why um declining revenue declining ads but what are some things that we th- we're missing um i often go in in any situation um with this preconceived notion that i don't know everything even if i know the topic like the back of my hand i'm going to go in prepared that i'm going to learn something new and so with this form I may come with some preconceived notions and what I see is wrong in the media, but I'm also prepared to learn, like, wait a minute, I didn't think of this. There's something else that we're missing collectively. Uh, and I believe that that happens in, when you get people like this every time. Uh, and I think that's going to be illuminating for all of us. Thank you, Russell Contreras with the Associated Press. Thank you so much for your time. If our listeners want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Best way is on Twitter at, at Russ. That's R-U-S-S, Contreras, C-O-N-T-R-E-R-A-S, one word. Outstanding. This concludes the Perception Podcast. Thank you for listening. This is Tom Garrity. Links to learn more about the event and our guests can be found in the show notes. Be sure to visit aboutperception.com for more podcasts like this. Mm -hmm.